you very much for coming. And today in our session, we're going to talk about insurance and financial services journey to cloud, uh, what it means in terms of designing hybrid cloud and migrating regulated workloads, right? And um, I'd like to introduce uh, Tejas Patel uh, from Guardian Life. Good morning, everyone. I'm Tejas Patel from Guardian Life Insurance. I'm the chief architect as well as I run the uh, enterprise architecture team. Go ahead, Manish. Thank you. So in the session today, we, we are going to talk about hybrid IT journey, what a typical journey looks like. And I know you, most of you know this, right? Uh, so we're going to be fast on this. We're going to talk about Guardian Life Insurance in terms of what their experiences have been in terms of their journey to cloud, what they started with, where they are now and where they're heading. And then we're going to sort of end it with a lot of best practices around security, performance, uh, reliability, and cost. Uh, just a quick show of hands. Um, how many of you have production workloads on AWS? Oh, great. So that's good. You know, almost 40, 50%. That's wonderful. How many of you have done well-architected programs on AWS with your workloads? Okay, a few. Okay, that's great. So a lot of the best practices we're going to talk about are sort of principles from the well-architected program. You've heard this today in the keynote. Um, it's really important for AWS um, to, 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 you know, to help you succeed. So the well-architected program just, just does that. So with that, um, I actually, so a little bit about me. Um, Manish Mohite. I'm the enterprise solutions architect with AWS. I'm based out of New York. I support financial services and insurance companies, um, and uh, I have a lot to share here, so I guess we can get started. Um, so this is uh, what a typical journey looks like, right? You probably folks have already known this, right? You start with low-risk environments, development test. You know, you move, like, as you're building new applications, you see all the services that's out there, and you want to take advantage of that. So you start of thinking building new applications, right, on the AWS, with AWS services. Um, so, so from a, from quickly, from a value add perspective, right, I just want to briefly touch on the value add. Um, the first thing is um, agility, right? So when you talk about agility, what does it actually mean, right? If you have uh, hundreds of servers or thousands of servers that you need, you can get that in minutes, right? You can build petabyte-scale databases in minutes, right? That's agility. If you want to develop applications, you can do a prototype for your applications within probably a day or a week. Uh, so that's agility, right? Um, cost. Uh, cost is really important, right? So um, where you kind of see a big cost benefit is, you know, turning things off when you don't need them, right? So introducing the utility model for your applications and your resources in the cloud is where you see a lot of cost benefit. Um, elasticity, right? You saw this today in the keynote that Amazon, you know, has higher peak workloads during the um, sort of holiday season, and, and you grow during that time. So those are the kinds of things that brings a lot of cost benefit and elasticity. Um, and we've, we have customers like Dow Jones and News Corp. They have saved tens of millions of dollars with that, right? Analytics is huge. Um, you can do a lot of, um, you know, analytics and services are growing very rapidly. So we see a lot of customers like Financial Times have, um, you know, I think, what, 250 subscribers, and they do the analytics on them. And there are many, many examples of that. And for data center migrations, you know, Dow Jones, uh, we, uh, News Corp, 
um, Netflix, you heard today that they've migrated their last data center. So they're seeing a significant amount of value in that, right? And then building mission-critical applications. Like, I support financial services, so I do see a lot of customers with mission-critical applications on AWS. For example, the Dutch National Bank have their retail banking on AWS from a mission-critical perspective, right? So for, for, for AWS, from a hybrid cloud perspective, offer a lot of services that allow your on-prem data centers to integrate with AWS, right? And I just, these are some few of those. So let's start with the networking. From a networking perspective, um, you basically build a network secure network zones similar to what you do in, within your data centers, right? So the VPCs allow you to build sort of your private subnets, your public subnets, pretty much similar to what you have within your data center, right? You bring your own IP address, you know, RFC 1918 compliant IP addresses you bring over into AWS and you build your network the way you want it. You build the segmentation so forth. From a connectivity perspective, you have many options there. And I think AWS, you probably heard this, is all about options. Uh, most customers would start with VPN, right? I mean, that's, you don't want to invest a lot of money, you want to do a VPN over the internet. That's where most customers I see start in terms of AWS. As they grow, they see that there's a value in actually having more dedicated, you know, private lines and circuits into AWS, right? So they'll go into Direct Connect. Uh, you also have the options of doing VPN over Direct Connect. So if some customers that want to have um, encryption for their data transfers from on-prem to, to AWS can do encryption with VPN uh, on top of um, Direct Connect. And then you have new offerings now from Verizon and AT&T. So Verizon offers Secure Cloud Connect and AT&T is offering NetBond. So you have the option of um, essentially using network on demand for that, right? From an Active Directory perspective, it's important to know that, um, you know, I'm just going to be very prescriptive. If you're going to have a directory on-prem and you're not migrating the directory in AWS, you absolutely should be looking to leverage SAML Federation, right? Because you want to be able to use the identities on-prem and, and have them, all the permissions and policies applied based on the SAML uh, Federation, right? From a storage gateway perspective, that's huge because now you have all this data sitting on-prem and you want to move that data to AWS. Um, you know, you have a lot of products available now that can back up directly, like, you know, from your data center through an HTTPS, um, you know, protocol into AWS to S3 or Glacier, right? Commvault and Backup Exact and NetBackup are all these big, you know, software backup products that can do that. You also have the, a lot of offerings from a storage gateway perspective in AWS, right? So you have cached volumes, you have stored volumes. You can basically build storage gateway products in your data center and move. And now you know Snowball and Snowmobile, so you have a lot of options there in terms of being able to move data across. And from an integrated management perspective, you have, you know, Microsoft solutions, VMware solutions, um, you know, BMC, Okta, ServiceNow. All of these management solutions have integrations with AWS, right? So that's sort of, uh, you know, a, a great... And again, this is just the starting. There's many more products that you've heard today are actually out there. Uh, like, you know, code commit can actually, you know, uh, code deploy can work on-prem as well as in, in AWS. Uh, you heard about other products that can actually, uh, the Glue product can catalog your data that's sitting within your data center, right? So it's, there are more and more offerings coming in this space. Now, this is an important slide. I want to just take a few minutes here and talk through this. Licensing. 
as you look at migrating your applications and your workload, these are sort of important elements. Licensing is you should be able to move most of your software licenses into AWS, right? Uh, but that's an important element that you want to think about. Uh, think about it in the context of you're going to have elasticity in AWS. You will have maybe, say, you know, start off with 10 servers or 20 servers, and then you're going to grow elastically, right? What does that mean to licenses? If you shut things down, what does that mean to licenses, right? So licensing is an important element that you should be considering in terms of assessing your workloads. Internal versus external applications. Are your applications external-facing, or they are internal applications within your data center? It's going to have a big impact from in terms of your network topology and design. For example, IDS, IPS, DDoS, all of these things will come into play if it's external-facing application. If it's internal-facing, you probably would not have to worry out of that as much. Uh, from a technology stack, right? I mean, on AWS, you're basically offered an x86-based uh, technology stack. So you want to understand, are you running AIX3? Are you running Solaris today? Are you running the, the, the products today um, you know, on your, within your data centers? And how does that impact in terms of the data uh, migration, right? Uh, from data storage and networking standpoint, are you running clustered products today? Are you, do you have clustering involved today? Uh, do you have shared storage? Uh, do you have multicast? Um, those are the important things that you would want to understand as you actually look into uh, from a data storage and networking standpoint when come to AWS, right? Application dependencies and, and, and complexity, integration complexity is very big uh, because often applications are not standalone. They work with other applications. So you want to understand what my application interdependency is like. And, um, you know, if you, that means you have to move one application or you may have to move a group of applications together. So those are important things that come into play in terms of application dependency, right? Security, data classification, very important because you want to know what data you are going to have in the cloud. You're going to want to secure that data. You want to make sure that you encrypt that data, right? So these are sort of some very important key elements in terms of migrating to um, or our application assessments in AWS. Um, again, going back into the layers, you, you have the similarly, basically the same layers as you have in your data centers. If you look at data centers, you have the availability uh, zones and regions. We have 14 availability zones, uh, sorry, regions now, and, um, you know, four are announced already, so it's a global footprint and it's growing. Uh, from a networking perspective, we talked about this, VPC Direct Connect, um, hypervisor EC2, and now you're going to have the VMware integration into AWS. So that's going to have, you know, ESX integration available on AWS as well. Um, operating systems, you know, pretty much what you have today is, is going to be available in AWS x86 compliant. So you kind of get a feel that it's really what you have today is what you're getting in AWS from a starting point. And then you have a lot of optimization opportunity, right? So with that, um, let me um, hand it over to Tejas uh, from for the Guardian perspective. Thanks. Thanks, Manish. Thanks, Manish. Hey, guys. So I'm here to talk about our journey um, in multiple aspects. What's our long-term strategy as well as how we got where we are, primarily focusing around compliance audit security um, and, and sharing some um, lessons learned with you guys. So Guardian Life is a, um, a mutual company about 155 years old. Uh, we have about 8,000 employees and about 3,000 FRs. Um, we're our global company now through acquisitions, so we're in Canada, India, and the, and the U.S. Uh, we have about 25 million customers that we support across two of our products lines, uh, individual markets, which provides insurance services, 
for term and whole, as well as disability and annuities wealth management investments. And then we also provide group insurance for small to medium companies that are looking to insure their employees around dental vision life. And we also provide an AMSA C management platform for enterprises looking to manage staff that are on medical leave, uh, family leave, or paternity and maternity. So we have a wide range of products and services. Uh, we're also highly regulated across money industries, and I'll go into details as we go through this. So for us, um, <clears throat> the cloud journey is not just about moving virtual machines. It's about providing business outcomes. Uh, so how do we increase productivity? How do we reduce complexity? Um, adapt to change. So over the last three years that I've been a guardian, we've gone from, you know, 4,000 employees to 8,000 employees, a lot of acquisitions occurring through that. So the cloud has to be nimble enough and, and adapt to all these changes that the business is pressuring us on. Uh, flexible, scalable, and agile are key components of how we want to deliver our cloud for, the, for Guardian. Uh, our strategy is looking at our platform is from a technology utility-based platform. So we have to make it self-service. There has to be a self-service uh, catalog. It has to be public and private. Uh, it, you know, it has to be hybrid or multi-cloud. That's a strategy for us. Uh, and security and compliance are core. So every, every conversation we have, our compliance and security team are at, at the table. We've got to ensure that we're doing the right thing for Guardian. And why? Because benefits that we'll derive, derive from this is reduce our time to market uh, of cost avoidance, improve our resource efficiencies. So how do we leverage cloud capabilities to drive down cost? As well as improve our employee efficiencies, and, and you're seeing a slide coming up around how we've leveraged a lot of SaaS capabilities, but also our development environments and productivity around that. How do we improve that? And, and overall, security is at the core of our strategy. So what apps are targeting it for AWS? As you can see, everything is for us. Uh, mobile, all our mobile clients are going to move over to AWS. Our portal, our both external and employee web portals or applications are going to move to AWS. Our data platforms are going to move to AWS. Uh, M&A activities, we're, we, we don't, we're, we're not going to follow a process of a two-step where we're going to migrate to our data center and then right to AWS. It's a one-step process for us. We're going to go right from the activity to the cloud. Uh, and then leveraging, uh, through our M&A activities, leveraging AWS's cloud region. So Asia is becoming a presence for us. Uh, U.S., East, and West are presence for us. And then we're, a key area for us is the innovation platform. So being in an insurance industry, we're looking at everything from IoT uh, sensors to, from an underwriting perspective, actuarial perspective, looking at facial recognition software to help us with this process. We're looking at virtual reality, augmented reality, blockchain. So this AWS provides an innovation platform for us to deliver prototypes and MVPs really fast without worrying about infrastructure support. So <clears throat> our journey so far uh, over the last six years, um, again, Guardian's done a phenomenal job when it comes to employee cloud services. We started with Workday Service Now, Office 365. Great. As an employee, I have everything in the cloud. What we, what we, well, over the last two years, what we've started doing is taking our applications and our services and moving them to the cloud. And that's where building a private cloud and then expanding it to AWS. And our journey towards the future is looking at more SaaS services where they're best of breed capabilities for services that we don't want to be in. We just want to outsource. We want to build products and services for our clients and our employees where it makes sense. And then continue to look at in the future, say, three to four or five years from now, our strategy is to be multi-cloud. So what are our options? How are we going to manage them? And our tooling and our process and our methodology has that in our DNA. Um, what, we all, what we also did was we, we <clears throat> to ensure that we have a focus and a common goal is we came up with what we call the cloud, the Guardian Life uh, Cloud Maturity Model. 
and looking at it from different views, because not every workload is going to be the same. The goal is to be the cloud, is to get the cloud native, but we all we have everything from homegrown software to COTS or off-the-shelf software, so we got to ensure that we have different flavors as we migrate. So cloud ready being more of the machine to machine, so encapsulated and just move it over, where MVC is our own term, minimal viable cloud, and it contradicts kind of like the .NET framework sometimes, but uh, it's looking at some of the 12-factor application subsets, but ensuring that you're leveraging Amazon best practices around HA, but trying to ensure that you can get to cloud native where it's truly an API microservices beta so architecture for our applications, and, 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 and the apps themselves can be self-healing in HA and leveraging metrics and logging. That's our focus for us. <clears throat> so our journey started actually in 2015 with Amazon. Uh, our business unit under individual markets was launching a new product, um, what we call Individual Markets Portal, and introducing two new products, Disability and PaaS, on top of life and annuities. So they came to, to IT and said, we want a platform that can be agile, that can be responsive to multi-devices, from mobile to tablets to, 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 to laptops and PCs, as well as they wanted to change how they deliver code and re, and, or features to the, to the to the customers, so an agile platform. Um, internally, we didn't have that capability on our, in, our, in our private data center. So we started to look at options, and Amazon was the platform we selected, and we built this application in May of 2015. We launched the project. And by 2000, um, uh, November of 2015, we launched a production application where we have clients coming in, but it was just our front door. Uh, authentication, policy access, user profile management for our clients was all data calls back through a VPC back to Guardian. And as you can see, we leveraged a lot of services, but they were more from a front-end web application perspective, uh, everything from EC2 to Lambda to auto-scaling to uh, cloud, every cloud trail feature, cloud uh, AWS config to MFA, we, this was just setting the foundation, but we weren't done. The goal was to put data at rest in AWS. So majority of this year, we, we worked on making what, 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 what I call AWS an endpoint from a compliance perspective. And, and that's, we, we, cert, we started with certifying, and a key piece that we, we, we ensured and we made sure is the auditors, the security team, the compliance team, and the cloud team are on the same page. And we started re reading the regulations for MAR, for SA-16, for HIPAA, as engineers. Because when we're sitting down with these individuals, they're not technologists. They're doing their job to ensure Guardian's a safe place to work and build products. So you have to be at the same table with them. And, and they're going to look at the current data center and compare what their controls. And we have about 400 controls. And how do they map to, Gar to AWS? So trying to explain to them how Lambda works versus, say, Control-M. It's an, it's an interesting conversation, but that's really what it came down to. They thought they just see Lambda as a batch, a scheduling process, but the reality is more than that. But they had to. That's what we use today. So looking at every single control, uh, we started at every, you know from for, when we we're HIPAA, MAR, SA16, SOC1, SOC2, KFS, PII, you name it. We're, we also have some PCI, PCI, but we outsource that. We have pretty much every type of regulatory, almost every type. So we have about 400 controls where we sat down control by control with the auditor and said, how are we going to, for across every domain, so how does access to the environment, everything from a console, MFA is enabled, single sign-on to system administration access, how is that monitor logged? And then we also tested it and we validated with a third-party auditor to ensure that we're ready. The goal was to make the Amazon cloud just like the Guardian cloud. So here's some sam samples uh, for us uh, from a model audit rule uh, you know, so there's a requirement around data access and, and management and provisioning. So we looked at that and said, how does that work in RDS? 
Uh, the, you know, already has some functionality, but the reality is there's some functions within the operating system that we needed to enable. So we have a, we, we sat down with them and said, okay, we can use RDS for non-compliant low workloads, but for compliant workloads, we're going to use EC2 with a, with SQL, Oracle, MySQL, Postgres, because that's the requirement. So we sat down and said, okay, here are our options, and we pre presented them to our engineering team and said that's the option. HIPAA was the same thing. So there's around account, uh, account provisioning and management. You need to have an audit trail. So how do you ensure when users are logging into your consoles that's being, you know, uh, on cloud trail and then put into our SIM and it's noted and, and, and alerted. Uh, SA16 has a lot of c c controls and concerns around segregation of duty, so how do you map those up? Uh, use the CIS benchmark best practices and apply them in our AIM for everything from rootkey uh, root disabling the root, root API, MFA against the root, um, as well as, you know, role-based access, ensuring that the right, right level of individuals have the access to your environment. The DR was a challenging um, as we're expanding into more SaaS as well as PaaS, as well as IaaS, as well as AWS Cloud. We have our own data center. We have the the, Guardi uh, the, uh, the AWS data center. So how do we test our failover scenarios? So documenting that, ensuring that, okay, when do you really call a DR? If Amazon goes down, is that a true DR? Or if, Gu if Guardian goes down, is that a true DR? So mapping those processes, educating both the business continuity team as well as the DR team and the IT team to ensure that you have a process in place is very critical. Um, so the migration process, uh, most of you probably seen this type of slide, people process technology, it's critical. Um, you know, you have to have executive sponsorship. Uh, without that, you will not be successful. It has to start from the top, CEO, CIO, business leaders have to understand what the strategy behind cloud is and what the benefits are for you. Uh, and, and change communication and change, and change management is critical. Why are we doing this? How are people impacted? What are the benefits of it? And, and what is the impact overall from an organization? And it's a journey. It's not a one-day thing or a one-week thing. Um, training and education. Everybody wants to get trained when they hear about cloud. But training the right people at the right time is very critical. Ensuring that the, 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 the A team, for example, is trained first and then the B team and the C team, because you want to make sure you have an education program to train as many of the right resources at the right time for you. Um, everyone is in, right? So as, as Manish alluded earlier, your licensing, your vendor management, your legal, your HR, because you're going to change the way you're doing work at, within the organization. So your HR needs to understand what type of talent they need to look for, what type of talent they need to recruit for, so, and then security, compliance, finance. Everyone has to be in this conversation for, for, for the platform to be successful. Your business case has to be solid. Uh, most of us, if you're in the enterprise, you have to write a business case from a financial, from a capability business outcome. It has to be a solid business case because without that, you won't get the funding to be successful. So you have to make sure you have that. Your support model. Um, you know, we, we debated internally, should we build a bimodal organization? And the reality is, uh, depending on, you know, if you talk to the Gartners of the world, there's pros and cons. We felt there were more cons than pros because the long-term benefit, or not, not the benefits are, you can't have two IT organizations. There's two costs, two operating models, two editor. And as a developer or a business unit, you wouldn't know where to go left or right, and that just confuses everyone. We just said, let's make one organization. Let's figure out where we can move resources, and let's ensure that we all just operate as one, rather than create a bimodal IT. It just wouldn't work for us. Um, security and compliance have to be at the table. Uh, around application waves and assessment, as, as Manisha alluded earlier, uh, for us, it wasn't, we went through a few, you know, th uh, con consulting firms come, at, come, to, come internally and look at our applications, do discoveries, et cetera. In the end, what we realized is, they were only telling us about 40 to 50% of what we need to know about our apps. 
we actually sat down with the application support teams, the development teams, understanding what the strategies are with their applications, what's going to be around the next three to five years, what's being merged, what's being sunset, and then develop the migration plan of how to get to AWS, rather than just having a third party come tell us this is how you should do it, we actually sat down and that's how we created our, our, wave, our wave approach. From a platform tech and, and, and tooling, I'll get into the CI/CD tool. Uh, we actually blew up our, C, uh, our software developer lifecycle. Uh, it wasn't working for us on-prem, and we knew it wouldn't work in, in, in the cloud. So we started. It was painful, and it still is because you're still putting the, the, pi the pipeline down. But you ha we realized we had to change that process in order for to leverage and, and get the benefits of the, of, of the cloud. So everything is treated as software in, in, in AWS. Uh, and I'll get into details around there. And our, our network security and zoning policy was very critical to ensure that we have separation of duties between our consoles from prod and non-prod, uh, as well as some sandbox, as well as uh, test dev and DR and a security console for security to do intrusion uh, and forensics. So we ensured we had all that capability. Um, and then communicating our standards and, and, and our process was critical. So we have blueprints that we've developed around AWS, and the blueprints are very detailed down to port level. And those basically become manifests for .NET, Java, PHP, Node applications at Guardian that talk to management services around monitoring security, to application services around APIs around single sign-on, and et cetera. Oops. So this is a high-level blueprint of our um, overall architecture. Um, couldn't share a lot of details. Our CISO said be very high-level. <laughs> so, you know, we have two primary data centers. Today what we're doing is creating VPN over the Internet, we are talking about Direct Connect as well as IBM, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Net, NetBond from, from AT&T. We're debating what's the right approach. If, if our strategy is to move 80 to 90 percent of our workloads in the cloud, does it really make sense to invest in a Direct Connect? Um, previous life, we didn't move that fast, and, you know, it doesn't, so there are pros and cons. Today, we're leveraging the U.S. East and West regions, and we also have an Asia region as part of a, uh, India expansion uh, in Mumbai and uh, Tokyo. Uh, but this is the high level. We're using, you know, ELBs with EC2 for .NET applications, and then we have the flavor of either EC2 uh, SQL or uh, RDS, depending on the compliant workload. Uh, we're also doing VPC peering between all of our consoles around management services and monitoring and AD and DNS, et cetera. Um, around our CI/CD pipeline, again, uh, you know, we, we retooled the entire pipeline from how we're going to how we take requirements from the business to how we're going to manage our code to how we're going to automate the deployment of our code, and then how we're going to deploy our environment. So using Terraform, CloudFormation, and then at the bottom you can see security has lens into the entire pipeline. They have the ability to audit. Our goal is to get to a slash audit for each application, so when an auditor comes in, they can just go to a browser, do application name slash audit, and get a complete manifest on how we're deploying our app, and if there are changes, they're updated right into this workflow, and so it simplifies the entire process from an annual, from a biannual, however often you're going to do these compliance, that's our strategy and we're focusing on. It, again, it's not easy, it's painful in the beginning, but we see the benefits long term of going through this process today. So again, it's lessons learned. Um, again, blueprints and enforced standards. If you don't have standards, you're going to have, you know, all kinds of environments that you won't be able to manage long term. Um, document the services that you're going to share to your consumers, if they're developers, if they're engineers, if they're architect, especially if you're highly, uh, you know, for HIPAA, for example, Amazon has eight, about 12 uh, services that are HIPAA compliant. You've got to ensure that if it's a HIPAA workload, the blueprint only leverages like EC2, or RDS, or, or S3, et cetera. 
Security is key. Um, you know, make sure that they're at the table. Their tools around threat management, monitoring, vulnerability scanning, around IDS, IDS, IPS, jump boxes, single sign-on, IAM roles, they're a part of that conversation. Your console strategy is very critical. Ensuring that you have a billing console as, as to, to from a centralized billing is very critical when you start the journey. We started with one console, we had a sandbox, and now we're up to, I think, about 12 consoles because of just the acquisition. But to have a centralized way of where all your bills are going to come up, so it, from a finance management perspective, from the chargeback, it's critical to have that. Um, you're going to, from a methodology, it's going to be a test and learn. You're going to fail, but ensure that you have a, pl a plan in place where you can recover from the failure and move forward. Um, education is critical, and educating, we actually you know, also sit down with our HR team and, and explain to them what we're doing with the cloud so they understand where we're going to and how we're doing agile and DevOps. So educating the right people at the right time is a key component of how we need to get there. Um, everyone's included in the journey. I already said that, right? You can't not include the entire organization with this type of transformation. Partners are critical. Cognizant is a partner of ours that we've leveraged heavily. Uh, Capgemini, CSE, REARC, AVT, you name them. They're going to help you, but you've got to make the decision when you need them on hands-on keyboard with, with the strategy versus execution. That's based on, the, you know, how they can help you get there. Um, leverage resources, right? Um, we use Gartner. We use Forrester. But I think another resource is like meetups, depending on where you are. Go to meetups, have your engineers, you know, present, have them create a peer relationship. Also in our, in our industry, we try to also we do peer references, understand where they are. So in some cases, you may become the reference, or they may ask you for reference, but it's critical because we're all trying to solve the same problem, right? We need to be compliant in the cloud. We need to be secure, and we need to be fast and nimble. So thank you. I'm going to get hand it back to Manish. Yeah, th thank you, Tejas. Uh, that was amazing, right? They started in May of 2015, and they were in production by November. Now, this isn't. This was their first app, right? So this is going through sort of wave zero, looking at you know identity access management, looking at you know monitoring, looking at all of those foundational services, right? Directory and so on, DNS, and then getting your app out there in a few months. So I think that was amazing. Um, and kudos to, I think, Cognizant, right, in this case, in terms of delivering this at a very fast pace. Um, so I, I want to be really very prescriptive here, so I'm going to go through these with some examples, right? From a security, and you probably have heard this before from many other sessions, from a security standpoint, root account is like the sort of the guard account in AWS. Um, if that's compromised, you know, create a lot of problems. So, obviously have a strong password for a root account, right? Passwords, believe it or not, can get um, easily, you know, cracked. Um, and, and you don't want that to happen. You don't want API keys for your root account. So, it's important to say, okay, certain things, I, I allow console login, certain things is only API based. There is no need for an API access into the root account. So, make sure that that's not out there. From an MFA, please use MFA. There are many options available from an MFA standpoint. You can do hardware MFA. You can do virtual MFA. You could uh, do SMS-based MFA. That's actually in preview now. So please leverage MFA, right, for root account. From roles and responsibilities standpoint, uh, you, within the enterprise organization, you have roles and groups defined today. Leverage 
you know, SAML-based assertion, or if you're not doing that, you want to have identity in AWS, definitely use users and groups aligning to roles and responsibilities. Uh, Cross-account roles, um, they just talked about Navi has got many consoles, many accounts. Uh, be careful in terms of how many accounts you create. Don't create thousands of accounts. That's going to become a problem. I know some companies are actually thinking like that. Um, have an account, maybe if, what I have seen work really well for a large insurance company or large financial services companies is creating accounts by lines of businesses, right? So you have accounts created for each line of business and accounts created based on the environments. So you have a development test account for a particular line of business and you have a production account for that line of business and then maybe a sand account. So there, there have been a few sessions that, that are account specific. Um, that if you haven't had a chance to see them, they will be available for you um, online, so you can always go back and check on that. But I think the key here is, you know, make, make sure you have an account strategy as you as you sort of come into AWS, so you're not going, uh, you don't have one account doing everything for a very, very large company and not have too many accounts either, right? So manage that. Obviously, this is Security 101. Um, ensure that you have minimum privileges defined, you know, policy of least, um, you know, least uh, permissions applied, right? Uh, logging, right? Very important. Um, and, and sort of this is like a checklist. I like the checklist approach. So this is almost like a checklist. So I think the key here is leverage service-specific logs, right? ELB, for example, a lot of customers use ELB but maybe have not turned on logging for them. Um, MapReduce, you know, you're using MapReduce, but you haven't turned on logging for that. Billing, you know, you're doing billing, but you don't have billing logs written to S3. Leverage logging wherever you can, right? But that's one thing. Logging is important, but it's important to say, I want to analyze my logs, and I want to alert based on the logs, right? So I think in case of Guardian, they're using a partner product, Splunk, which does a great job. Uh, so they analyze the logs, and then they alert based on that. So for, for CloudWatch logs, as, as you probably heard this in morning session, there's, there's a lot of new things coming there. But I think the big thing there is that you have application logs that can then be put into the CloudWatch log group, right? So then you kind of have a way to consolidate all your logs, right? So logging, very important. Please do that um, and analyze and alert based on that. Um, network host-level boundary protection. Um, Service-specific access control. So I am, identity access management is a very sort of rich service and it's constantly evolving and be, being providing more and more sort of capabilities, right? Now you heard today that, um, you know, and I think it was announced maybe a, a little while ago, was at an object level in S3, you can have, um, you know, specific permissions, right? So you say, this is a, you know, a, a secure object and I don't want it to be available for everyone. So leverage tagging, leverage service-specific IAM controls. Um, you know, leverage security groups. Um, obviously, you know, um, you have the ability to now securely say, I'm going to allow this protocol and this port to be accessing my C2 instances or my application. Leverage that. Uh, private subnet, if, if your application is, is an internal facing application and you have direct connect or VPN connection for, into AWS, no reason to have external subnets, right? Um, so leverage um, a zoning strategy that you probably already have within your data centers as you come into AWS, right? 
Um, if you have to manage AWS environments and you, those are external facing and you have nothing in your data center, then obviously leverage Jumpbox, Bastion host, right? These are almost like checkbox things. As you sort of plan this, you can use uh, checkbox. Now, Trusted Advisor is great. Guardian uses Trusted Advisor quite a bit. Um, gives you a lot of reports and say, what are the, the gaps in your environment? What are some of the exposures that are out there? Take advantage of the Trusted Advisor, right? So, um, almost a checklist. Geo restriction, I'm a big fan of that. Um, if I, my, if my users are in US and my customer and, and I'm, my company is based out of US, maybe the other, um, continents doesn't need to access my stuff, right? Leverage geo restrictions where you can, right? Um, and then again, um, this is very good. I know you heard about the Amazon Shield today, uh, but, um, you know, if, the CloudFront, Route 53, all of these services have mechanisms in place to avoid DDoS and other attacks. So as you build your applications, leverage these services, put AWS in front of you so that AWS is taking care of these attacks and exposures out there, right? So, so take advantage of these things, right, from a network host boundary protection perspective. Encryption, right? We always recommend encrypt your data in transit, encrypt your data at rest. Some of the methods, obviously, for doing that is, you know, VPN, um, SSL, private connectivity, or you could do VPN over your direct connect. So you have end-to-end -end encryption in place, right? Um, encryption at rest, um, certainly encrypt your data at rest, right? Now we have um, the AWS KMS service, very popular service. Now, now that we have the feature from an F for a lot of the enterprise customers, they've been asking for allowing to import keys into AWS, right? That feature was avail made available, I think, uh, a few months back. So please take advantage of the KMS key management service. Um, Cloud HSMs, which is really the SafeNet Luna devices, that's available um, in AWS as well. So if you want to have that level of control, you can do that as well. And then there are a number of partner solutions, depending on where you want to encrypt, right? like SafeNet, ProtectWay, and others that are out there. So if you do find something that you don't have in AWS, just a rule of thumb, always look at Marketplace Sec, right? If you, so when you're looking for these capabilities and you say, well, geez, I wish this particular thing was out there, I normally suggest, you know, look at Marketplace next, right? Um, this thing I see constantly a gap, actually. A lot of the reviews that we have done from a well-architected perspective is, is typically we see that um, customers encrypt data but often don't rotate keys, right? So have a schedule for rotating your keys. Ro please rotate keys, that's important. Um, performance, right? So from a performance perspective, um, you know, start off with, with load testing, um, benchmarking, right? Um, cost consideration, right? Periodic review of instance types. To give you an example, one of the large insurance companies I worked for um, I worked with, right? Um, you know, they were operating uh, a HPC workload uh, with 10,000 cores on a nightly basis. Um, they realized that by going from C3s to C4s, they're improving their performance and reducing their cost by 20%. So, so it's important that you kind of keep an eye on all these instance types. Now there are nine instance families out there, and there are more and more instance types being available to you. So when you look at your application and your workload, see what would make sense for you, right? So take advantage of that. From a storage perspective, I, I'm, I'm very impressed with a lot of the storage offerings. Now the block storage 
uh, was almost three cents, um, um, uh, all same price as object storage. So very uh, appealing in that sense. Um, you know, you have the file storage now EFS, right, uh, which is the NFS service, and then you have the worm storage, which is Glacier. They got a lot of, uh, you know, the right ones read many storage, and you can put uh, vault lock policies on your Glacier storage, right? So really important, take advantage of all these different storage tiers when you are building your application so that, um, you know, you can improve your performance as well, right? Um, caching, a um, lot of solutions available in AWS. Um, you know, look at CloudFront. Uh, if you have an external web-facing application, look at CloudFront. Uh, an interesting use case, uh, I had one customer who was had a, a web application running from their own data center, and they realized, well, geez, they're going to have a lot of users coming in, and they need to position for it. Um, all they really had to do was, you know, sort of they had maybe a, a day or two to prepare for it. You know, they introduced CloudFront in, in front of their on-prem web-facing application, right? So it's a hybrid model, but then allowed them to take advantage of the caching services in AWS while still having the application still on-prem, right? Um, Elastic Cache, Redis, Memcached are the two offerings today, unless something has changed that I missed. But um, really, you know, very attractive. A lot of customers use that um, and and helps. Proximity is very important from a from a region perspective, where your users are and, and where your data centers and where your regions are, so take advantage of those. Um, I know the data tier, right? From from an RDS or NoSQL or a columnar database, uh, you have a lot of options, right? So remember, the relational database is going to be a finite, um, it has a cap at the end of the day, right? So it's great if you have an atomic, you know, consistency requirement, uh, but if that's not the case, leverage DynamoDB. Right, Amazon.com is actually, you know, the the, the grounds of that, uh, where you have all these products out there, has a significant use of DynamoDB NoSQL database. So when you're looking at, you know, hundreds of billions of uh, uh, rows and records, uh, think of NoSQL. Um, RDS is going to have a cap at some point because you're going to have indexing and all kinds of stuff in it. Um, Redshift, right, great for OLAP, and this is again, this is the warehouse platform. So if you have structured um, OLAP requirements, that's where the, the uh, Redshift could come into play, right? And it's, it's, I think it's one of those services that has over 100, um, you know, sort of new features introduced in a very short period, right? So it's, it's innovating very fast, and I think you heard this today. Um, the Redshift team works very closely with the customers, and so does everybody else. Uh, that's, they're able to deliver very fast, right? So look at that. Coupling application interfaces and performance dependencies, very important. When you have, you know, applications, as you, as you plan to migrate into AWS, you're going to think about which applications you're going to migrate, and, and you want to understand what those dependencies are and what are some of those performance considerations, right? So, so look at coupling, uh, whether you want to move one application, whether you want to move more than one application, so forth, right? Um, I often see customers run into this. Um, like the example I gave you earlier, um, a... a you know, you can have hundreds or thousands of instances or a petabyte scale database. Absolutely true. But you need to have a limits extended for that, right? By default, in an AWS account, you're not going to have the limits to, you know, to, to go hundreds or thousands of servers, right? So often I do see customers run into this where they don't have the limits increased. Uh, so work with your 
a support team, work with your solutions architect and raise your limits based on your needs. Uh, plan for load testing, right? Um, often, you know, we see customers, you know, not do enough of load testing. So plan your limits based on your load testing, right? So that's sort of a common uh, approach we, we uh, suggest to customers. Uh, component failure, it's important that uh, your applications and your workload are reliable and highly available uh, within an availability zone or across region based on your DR requirements. So it's important that you do the component failure, right? Um, like Netflix, I think they have what they, they say, um, um, chaos monkey, right? So they, <laughs> it just goes and, and deletes the resources on, on the fly in production and they expect the application to just continue to work, right? And randomly it will just go and do whatever. So um, probably that's a bit of a <laughs> stretch, but plan for component failures. What happens if there's load balancer fails? What happens if this, well, ELB is different, but what happens if your instances fail, right? Or what happens if the database fails, right? So look for, think for component failures and actually try it if there's a way you can, right? Uh, Multi-AZ, multi-region architecture, as you heard from Tejas, they spent enough time, a lot of time in terms of disaster recovery, making sure that, you know, they test disaster recovery. And one of the key things that I constantly, I, I see all the time is you want to test disaster recovery without impacting your application DR. So you want to continue replicating your application uh, to your DR region, but want to be able to test it, right? So that's how you test it. So don't compromise DR when you're testing DR. <laughs> Um, so, um, an, an interesting use case. Pick your regions where possible. Um, so, it's important to think from a DR perspective that, you know, you, you have all these services out there now, right? Um, make sure that your DR region are also going to have the services that you're planning to use. Uh, I've seen situations where, oh, the customers pick this instance and this region, and their DR region does not have that instance, for example. And again, it's all just a matter of roadmap, but does not have that at that point in time. So when you're picking, you know, your regions, when you're picking your services, think from a DR perspective as well, or a component failure standpoint as well. Um, right? I think the, 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 the other thing important here is look for regional services as a preference, right? So S3 is a regional service. <coughs> So it's not specific to an availability zone. If the zone fails, that's fine. S3 is still going to be available, right? That's very unlikely, but it, if, if it does, DynamoDB, it's a regional service. Um, so you have these service categories, right? You have a service by an availability zones, you're serviced by, um, by region, and you have service global. Like IAM, Identity Access Management, is a global service. So wherever possible, pick services that are global, regional, before you get into availability zone specific. So that improves your reliability, right? It's just from a design and architecture standpoint. Um, change management, right? It's very important to do config um, automated change management you heard today. Um, you know, it's all about automation. So you don't make changes um, just on the fly. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, you won't, probably don't need access into your production environment at all because all the changes are rolled out in an automated way. So leverage automated change management and config service actually is one of my favorite services because it's it's a uh, real-time change management database, right? So we all know, we probably heard from an enterprise space, CMDB out there, difficult to maintain uh, the changes in CMDB. The config service um, will record all your 
configurations real time and allows you to go back in, in history and say, how did my environment look like? How did my resource look like a month ago or six months ago, right? So it's a very powerful service. I, I strongly you know, recommend using that. Um, and, and it will help you sort of go back in time and understand your configuration. Um, data backups, um, you know, often, uh, you know, you do backups, uh, but you want to make sure you're doing the backups for the stores, right? Um, so always have automated backups in place. Again, there are snapshots. I do see customers doing a lot of snapshots and not having a retention or a schedule policy with your snapshots. So you often run into a lot of snapshots and then, at times, there's a cost associated with that as well. So make sure that you do your backups, leverage snapshots for your backups, but have a retention and schedule for your snapshots, right? Um, file-level restores, if, you're, if you need to do file-level restores, <coughs> have, a, have a strategy in place for your file-level backups and file-level restores. Restoring from a snapshot, a file, isn't that easy. It's, it's obviously possible, but not that straightforward. So if you have a file-level recovery needs, plan for file level backups within within your um, environment right and then do recoveries right often customers do backups and never do recoveries so they find out the backups not working when they when they want to recover something so please take the time to do a periodic restore just to make sure that your backups are actually working um, disaster recovery um, you know build a dr solution i see a lot of customers building dr within an availability zone that's ideal, that's best, but you do have sometimes customers have requirement to do disaster recovery out of region, right? Think about that, make sure you do that ahead of time, right? So you're not sort of, as you plan your architecture, disaster recovery should be considered. Automated DR validation is, is important and automated DR creation. The, I think the, the, the really attractive part about automated DR is that now you have cloud formation. Um, CloudFormation has so many capabilities that you can build your entire stack um, in in um, in your alternate DR region, right? So, so take advantage of the automation uh, from a DR standpoint, and then uh, do periodic testing, right? I often see customers in the enterprise space; they will have DR testing on on a periodic basis, right, and on some schedule. So, so definitely do that uh, part of your checklist. Um, Support, um, have a plan for support. Um, you know, if, from an enterprise perspective, I've seen most customers take advantage of the enterprise support um, and, and leverage that. Um, so you have technical account management teams. They're very, um, you know, um, sort of <coughs> very close to the customer, understand they get, uh, if there's an incident that you have in the environment, they get notified. So the technical account management teams are there to support you from an enterprise support perspective. Uh, there's support APIs that you can make calls to create tickets and so on. So automated way of getting supports and have an escalation path. If you have a problem, that's not the way you'd find out when you and how do you escalate this, right? Have an escalation path, have it defined. It's part of the incident management that you would want to make sure that you have an escalation path defined if you need to escalate things, right? Within AWS or other places. Um, and last but uh, not the least, cost, right? Uh, very important. So I, you know, in, in my experience, I, I recall a CIO telling us his hardest problem was capacity planning because, you know, the business users start here and then the application um, IT would come up with their requirements. 
and then they will come to the infrastructure teams and you'll end up having, uh, 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 you know, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of bloated requirements, right? So cost optimization is important. In this case, you know, it's very important to understand that when you don't need your resources, you can shut it down, right? That's the key for optimizing your cost. Um, so let's take an example, right? Say on a normal basis, your application needs 10 servers to work, right? And then once a month, you need to, it's elastic and you need five additional servers, right? So from a cost optimization perspective, you want to be able to, sorry, you want to be able to use reserved instances for those 10 servers that you need all the time. And for those five servers that you need once a month, you want to do on-demand for those five instances, right? So that's how the cost comes into the play. And then if you have a development environment that doesn't need to be running up, uh, up and running all the time, shut it down. My favorite use case here is performance test. Performance test is our model office, generally same size as your production. Um, it, depending on your SDLC, water, waterfall or whatnot, you may not need the performance test environment all the time. So what do you do with that environment is running all the time? No requirement for that, right? So in AWS, you would want to shut it off, right? You only turn on product performance test model office when you need to, right? So that's really good use case, many use cases like that. To, to optimize cost. Um, from, a, from a capacity planning perspective, right, often use a demand-based, a queue-based approach for optimizing your cost. So, so you're not planning saying, oh, geez, I think it's going to need, you know, X number of resources to support my application, right? You want to be able to automatically, dynamically grow and scale your application based on the demand. That's sort of the way you want to think about it from optimizing your cost in that space. Leverage uh, lifecycle policies, right? I love the fact that for, for, for decades, the storage folks have been saying um, ILM is out there, and it wasn't really there. Um, I, the S3 lifecycle is there, um, and, and take advantage of that. So when you have objects on sitting on S3, after a certain period of time, you see that, okay, I no longer need this object you can move it off to lower tiers of storage, right? S3 has infrequent access, S3 has reduced redundancy options, right? And then you have Glacier, which is, you know, now I think you have a new offering in Glacier that allows you to recover fast as well. So leverage lifecycle policies with S3 to move data to lower tiers, right? If, you, if you're going to have on, on the S3 space, if you're going to have derived objects, that the data you can reconstruct, no need to have it sit on S3. Perhaps you can move it to S3 in frequent access, right? So another way of tiering, right? So, but leverage tiering with storage. Um, storage costs can go high, generally not in AWS, but in general. So take advantage of that. Um, we talked about this a little bit in terms of reserved instance, on-demand instances, pod instances. Um, a lot of customers doing HPC workloads, for example, with spot instances, right? Huge benefit there. A lot of customers doing EMR with um, spot instances for their task nodes, right? So that's really popular. Um, if you're going to have build applications workload based on the budget, right? Leverage spot instances because you say, look, I'm going to pay this much for it. And if you can give me a resource for that cost, I'm going to use it, right? So spot market is, spot instances are very popular 
in terms of a lot of different kinds of workloads, right? Um, monitoring usage um, and spending, um, you know, it, it normally, you know, when you start, you don't think about it, uh, but you want to leverage, you know, the cost explorer, you want to use the budget, uh, you want to use your tagging um, uh, sort of methods in terms of how you understand or, or um, you know, sort of get a good sense from a cost monitoring usage perspective, right? Um, so, again, you know, important here from a resource life cycle, I often see this. Um, this, is, this happens all the time in the enterprises. They have servers lying out there not used at all, right? It's because, you know, they, they asked for it, they, they got it, they, they did whatever they want to do, and now they're no longer being used, right? So that's a lot of cost. That's, that's waste. Um, trusted advisor and fewer other products can actually identify those things for you, saying, hey, you have these things not being used at all. So leverage that, right? Leverage some of these tools available in the AWS to, to manage all these stale resources, right? Decommission them. You can have an automated policy in place that says, if I don't use this server in 30 days, I send a notification. I'll wait for another 30 days, and if that nobody says anything, I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to take a snapshot and shut it down. So worst case, if I have to bring it back up, it's easy to bring it back up. But leverage that, right? Decommission your resources when they don't need, they're not needed. Um, data transfer. I, I had one company I worked with. Um, you know, their intra-region, um, sorry, intra-AZ uh, data transfer cost was very high. They build the application that they're very chatty across availability zones, right? So, and they found this out, obviously, when they saw the bill, <laughs> which is not the, the best way to, to, to design for that. But, but do think about it. Uh, do think about the data transfers, intra-region, inter-region, right, from a DR perspective. When you're saying, I want to build a DR out of region, understand that, you know, you're going to be replicating all that data across region. There is a cost element to that. Um, direct Connect, you know, when you're using Direct Connect, your egress cost is lower. Um, so think of that. It's actually a benefit in, in some sense if you're going to have high volumes of, of egress out there. Um, CDN, if you're doing, um, you know, egress and uh, if you're using CloudFront, it's going to actually be, um, you know, cost effective. There's a, there's a benefit with that. Um, you know, again, not to mention the CDN is going to offer the security benefit as well. Um, and, and improve the end user performance, so on. But but look at that from a from a data transfer perspective. Um, new services, features. There are so many new services coming all the time. We have 70 services, I think, as of yesterday or day before. Uh, I think we have 10 more now. Um, so there are many new services. They keep coming. Um, take advantage of the new services and products as you see them, right? And last, not the least, trust advisor, right? Um, so, final thoughts. Um, as you think about, you know, the cloud adoption and the hybrid infrastructure, you know, AWS allows you a lot of ways to integrate that. We talked about the networking, the storage, you know, the management, um, you know, and, and identity access management. So take advantage of that. Um, reduce the heavy lifting. Um, you know, managed cloud allows you to like focus on business. So wherever possible. Use the services that are actually, you know, doing the work for you. Like example, RDS. You know, relational database service is doing so much work for you. You're doing the backups for you. You're doing replication for you. Um, you don't have to worry about the underlying OS and protection of the OS. So leverage those sort of, I call it um, container services. Amazon calls it container services. 
you know, more like platform services wherever you can so that you are reducing the stress on your IT staff, right? Um, and then um, cloud reduces the compliance burdens, right? Because as, as they just pointed out, um, you know, they had, you know, because the data center is a nondescript data center, the services are actually gone through a lot of compliance audits. It's less things that the enterprises would have to do. So take advantage of, of uh, the services and the, the, the um, you know, from a compliance perspective as well. Um, and and um, last but not the least, think of um, you know this, the think of servers resources as cattle in AWS, not pets. Um, so you know if it doesn't work, that's fine. I'm going to shut down, bring a new one, right? So that's that's important in terms of how you want to leverage cloud and AWS services. Um, hope it it helped you and uh, hope it gave you some insight. And um, leverage that as a checklist, and I'm, as, please take advantage of the well-architected well program as well, especially now that it has operational excellence, um, you know, a new pillar that got added in it, um, which, which I think at the end of the day, Amazon's goal is to help you be successful, and that gives a method for doing that. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you.